is 9.33 in the morning on uh, Friday, December 8th, 2017. This is the LDS Live Podcast. I'm Kevin Williams, podcasting from my Kevin Cave in West Jordan, Utah. Don't forget to like me on Facebook. And if you have a comment or a suggestion as to who I should have on the podcast, give me an email at kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. That's kevinw at ldslifepodcast.com. I thought we had a great podcast last week, or not last month, with uh, Joni Bills. Now, some of you are wondering, why am I only doing the podcast once a month? Well, there's technical things going on. Uh, for some reason, when I record, it only lets me record up to 250 megabytes because of the plan that I have with Blueberry. Also... Um, when I record, for some reason, this takes up a lot of memory, so I'm only able to do one podcast per month right now, and that may change in the future. I'm hoping it does, but for now, I'll probably do about one podcast per month or something like that. Um, also, we're going to talk about the Bundys today and some other things, and people are wondering, why are you so obsessed in the Bundys? Quite frankly, I'm getting tired of hearing that question. The reason I'm obsessed with the Bundys is because the more I have studied this trial, the more I realize it's not just about them. It's not just about some rancher in Nevada. If it was, I probably wouldn't care that much about it. But it's happening to other ranchers, and Brian, you know as well as I do that this could happen to anybody if the government gets away with what they're doing, don't you think? That is the connection I wish more people could make. If if the government can run roughshod over a family like the Bundy family then they can do it to anybody. Absolutely. By the way, Brian Hyde is my guest. He's been a guest on before. How are you, Brian? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back, Kevin. Sure. we got a lot to talk about. Uh, before we get into the Bundys, though, let's talk about what you're doing. You uh, were laid off uh, uh, from KSUB, what, early January of this year. I can't remember the date. Do you remember? I know it was early in January. I was liberated on January 4th, and I, and I used the, the term liberated because... Um, there, there were other things that uh, that I needed to do, and uh, now I'm free to do them, and it, it's it's amazing. There's there's wonderful life after radio. Yeah. So what are you doing right now? So right now I'm working as the development director for Libertas Institute, a public policy institute based in Lehigh, Utah. And as as their fundraiser, I go out and I help build relationships with uh, foundations and. Uh, potential donors, people who, you know, have a philanthropic bent. And, uh, you know, we, we work at uh, removing obstacles from the path to liberty for people. Okay. And uh, what is your, what is the website? So Libertas' website is Libertas, and I'll, I'll spell this out, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S, org. Okay, so that's L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S dot org? Yeah, L-I-B-E-R-T-A-S Utah dot org. Oh, Utah, okay. Utah org. Okay, and I'm going to put a note, to, I'm going to put that in the show notes here as well. And uh, so do, do they do any uh, events or anything like that? Or what, I know that they're an institution, but do they do events to get the word out and to, to oh, classes yeah. or... Our focus is on three primary areas um, that, that impact liberty, you know, across a wide portion of our lives. And those areas are personal liberty, of course, free market economics, and uh, private property rights. And, you know, part of what we do is, is we influence public policy. We have about a 77% percent 
success rate in getting the initiatives or the, the, the um, legislation that we sponsor through the Utah legislature. And, and I want to caution you that that doesn't mean we're, we're advocating for more government. More often than not, those, those uh, pieces of legislation are restricting and restraining government so that we can you know, exercise our freedoms more fully. Sometimes we engage in strategic litigation. If there's a state or a municipal entity that is overstepping its bounds, we will sue them in order to bring them back into line. And a good portion of what we do is also um, educating people. You know, when you talk about events, one of the most successful things that we've been doing the last couple of summers is uh, children's entrepreneur markets, which we do along the Wasatch Front. We do about six of them each summer. This is where kids ages five and up can come together and they can buy, barter, sell, trade. But the idea is parents are invited, but they're told to stand back, let the kids be the ones who handle the money, let them decide, are we gonna sell cookies? Are we gonna sell fidget spinners? Um, they discover you know, what, to, what the correct price is. Oh, the guy down here is selling his for two bucks less than me. Do I adjust my price or do I make the case that my fidget spinners are better quality than his? And, and it gives them a hands-on experience at a very early age of what it's like to be an entrepreneur and to, to have a hands-on business experience at, at a level that they can appreciate. I wish my I wish that this kind of thing was around when uh, we were kids. My mother would have been all over this with my brother. My brother loved to sell pumpkins and put up lemonade stands. He would have been all over this. I think it's a great idea. Now, yeah. How did uh, Libertas get its name? That's an interesting name. Well, as I understand it, Libertas is uh, you know it's the root liberty within mm-hmm. it, so it's. It's connected to liberty, and I understand that Libertas is the goddess of liberty. I can't oh. tell you much more beyond that, but but you know our symbol is a torch, and that's a one that's a fitting symbol for liberty. And what we're trying to do is is keep that torch burning brightly and inspire people to do what it takes to be able to hand that torch off to those who will follow in our footsteps. Now, uh, is it a Greek goddess, or do you know if it's a uh, Roman, or what kind of a goddess was Libertas? That I can't tell you. Okay. Well, very good. So what are some other upcoming events that you have uh, uh, that you can discuss? And then we'll get into our topic here. Well, uh, the, the legislative session will be coming up before long, and, you know, there, there will be a lot of work being done there. Oh, yeah. Uh, let me just kind of tell you what, what we have been able to do this year, and, and then I'll tell you a little bit about what we have coming up, you know, in, in the months ahead. Good idea. This year... Libertas persuaded the legislature to prohibit cities from making home-based business owners pay for permission to operate their businesses. In other words, if you had a home-based business, it, it could be legal to, to do it without a permit, a license, or a fee. So the lemonade stand that was getting shut down, that's no longer a problem. The state has, has uh, prohibited cities from, from cracking down like that. We secured passage of legislation that repealed the vehicle safety inspections. The reason for this is it, it was an, a burden being imposed on drivers that didn't actually help reduce fatalities or increase safety. It was, you know, a nice fee that the state could tack onto your inspection, but but uh, people should voluntarily be having their vehicle safety inspected, you know, on their own. We strengthened the state's civil asset forfeiture laws, making it harder for prosecutors to take property from people who haven't been convicted of a crime. Uh, we got a bill passed that made it harder for cities to restrict short-term rentals. And uh, those are just a few of the things we did legislatively. legislatively. This coming legislative session, we are working to reduce 
and then eventually repeal what's called the tangible personal property tax. That's a tax that compels business owners to annually pay taxes on the things they've already purchased, they've already paid tax on, but every year they're taxed on those items. Uh, for instance, I have a friend who does leather work, and the state wanted to know, well, how much, you know, how much needle and threads do you have? Maybe five bucks worth, but they wanted him to pay tax on those things. We'll also be working to eliminate police quotas that force law enforcement officers to go out looking for reasons to write people tickets. And with 43% of people in jail still awaiting trial, we're also going to be working on reforms to ensure that those who are presumed innocent until proven guilty are treated like they're innocent and not just held in jail. And, wow. of course, you probably remember the, the incident at the University of Utah where the nurse was arrested. Oh, for, yes. Uh, standing up to the officer trying to, to take a patient's blood. Oh, yeah. We're also working on warrant reform that would limit an officer's ability to obtain a person's blood and, and make them go through the proper steps and due process that they would in any other criminal investigation. So it sounds like uh, you're making some pretty good progress. Oh, there's, you know, the nice thing is there is never a shortage of forces that are working against personal liberty or against private property rights or even against free market economics. So we're always going to have a lot of work to do. Um, we just we just happen to be uh, an organization that uh, you know Connor Black has done remarkable work in in founding this this public policy institute and I, I don't want to sound too proud here I don't want to sound like you know thumping our chest but um, we're able to accomplish some really great things considering how small our organization is we punch far above our weight. I have one request uh, next summer with your children's entrepreneur event you should talk to somebody into making a cookie in the shape of a fidget spinner. <laughs> See? You, you've got the entrepreneurial spirit yourself. Somebody <laughs> can make a fortune on those. You know, I, I, I believe it or not, I'm 37 years old, and I still love fidget spinners. I, every fidget spinner I've had, I've broken because I play with it too much. I have to laugh. Truth be told, my kids' fidget spinners have probably spent a lot more time spinning in my hands than, <laughs> than I would, uh, would like to admit, but... But yeah, they they're they're a fun a fun way to pass the time. Oh yeah, and uh, I twirl a lot of things in my hand anyway. In fact, somebody asked me, why don't you put this podcast on YouTube and video it? Because I'm constantly twirling something in my hands while I'm doing the podcast, or I'm twirling my thumbs. I'm not going to put that out on uh, video. That would be very distracting, wouldn't it? Yeah, it certainly could be. Oh yeah. Let's uh, get into the Bundys here. We've, I know you've got limited time, so I'll try to keep it down. Just to give you all background, I first heard about the Bundys through you, Brian, because at the time, nobody was reporting anything about it. Uh, that is, until the day later. I was listening to the ABC Perspective show back when you had it on KZNU down in St. George, AM 1450, and you came on the air saying, this is one of the few free speech zones left. And I thought you were just being sarcastic. I guess you were, but I wasn't <laughs> sure why. And then I heard the story, and I was kind of oblivious until you filled us all in about the Bundys. And I, I don't know if you remember this. I jokingly called in and said, uh, where's Bo Greitz when we need him? Right. And I don't right. know if you remember that. but uh, Oh, you know, I, I, I do. Bo Greitz, uh, for those of you that don't know, uh, he negotiated the standoff for Randy Weaver. Incidentally, uh, he got excommunicated from the LDS Church, reasons that we don't have time to get into. 
but uh, you can do the research on your own. It's out there. Uh, if you're that, if you're if you're curious enough, just Google his name, and you'll find all kinds of things that come up. Um, anyway, and then uh, people started reporting it, such as uh, Sean Hannity, and I think Infowars actually was reporting on it the same time you were, if I'm not mistaken. And that's one thing I want to get out of the way real quick. Why aren't people like Alex Jones and John B. Wells from Caravan to Midnight reporting on this anymore? Um, you know, I don't know. And, and frankly, I, I, I don't know because I have limited my mass media intake quite a bit. There's, there's a lot of disinformation out there. And, you know, I, some would say, well, maybe you're just hiding your head in the sand. But, but truth be told, is a lot of what dominates the, the mass media um, menu of, of things that they're willing to talk about are things that really have very little to do with our lives. And so there, there has to be some more of a personal connection before I start to get interested. In the case of the Bundys, um, I have that personal connection because I've been a friend of Ryan Bundy's for about 12 years and uh, was actually at Bundy Ranch um, when all of this situation was going down in Bunkerville back in, in 2014. And so I, I, I have a very personal invested interest there. And right now I'm just thrilled to be part of the... Uh, media bypass operation that's taking place where mainstream sources will report on the on the Bundys. I mean, you have Reuters and Los Angeles Times and High Country News and things like that. They're in the courtroom reporting, but they still take a very skeptical tone towards the Bundys and towards uh, the, the case that the Bundys have made for why they stood up to the government. And so it's, they're being bypassed through social media, of all things. And even, even NPR has now come out and said, well, it's, it's like we, we have parallel universes. We have, we have the legitimate media, which in their eyes is the mass media, and then we have this, uh, what, what they refer to as the fringe media, but it's people like me and, and the organization for which I'm reporting, which is Who's Next? You can look that up on Facebook. Um, we, we are getting the word out. We have direct access to the Bundys that uh, these other media sources don't. And, and the proof in the pudding is now they're actually starting to quote some of us uh, spectators who are in the courtroom, but who are still taking notes and going out and reporting on what we're seeing take place. Well, you're absolutely right about uh, the biased media. Um, I see it in this case. The Oregon Live actually, I don't know if you saw this in the Oregonian. It was actually posted on the Who's Next page on Facebook. Um, they reported the calls uh, they, well, the, uh, the journalist there, uh, Maxine Bernstein, reported the mm -hmm. calls, the fact that they had calls, and then they actually reported some of the conversation that went on in the Malheur Life Refuge after the Bundy standoff. I was kind of surprised. Were you? Oh, this was the, the calls between defendants and their attorneys. Yeah, but then while after... They were, while they were uh, in, in custody up there in, in Oregon. Yeah, they yeah, reported huge. that that was released, but huge. if you... What's that? It's a huge violation yeah. of of the ethics and and the the you know, attorney client privilege, and and it's part of a pattern that we're starting to see emerge over and over again on the part of the prosecution, not just in Oregon but also in Nevada. You know, they'll they'll stonewall on evidence or they'll they'll bury it in you know two or three terabytes of of information that you know would fill up a couple of computers and and tell the defense, yeah, we've given you everything, but, you know, they buried them in a lot of meaningless stuff, and they're doing it to 
you know, to, to bolster their own case and also to hamstring the defense, but it's, it's not playing according to the rules of due process. And that's, that's a big problem, because that's government behaving in a lawless fashion. Yep. And that's, something, that's, that's what led to the situation in the first place. Yeah, were you surprised the Oregonian actually reported on that? You know, Maxine Bernstein, I, I've met her and I've spoken with her at the, uh, at the trial in Las Vegas, and when she first started reporting on the, you know, the Bundys, it was following the occupation of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge. And I, I felt like her reports were very biased and very slanted. But I've got to give Maxine credit. Um, there is more objectivity to her reporting. Um, I don't think that she is necessarily a fan of the Bundys, but I would consider her one of the best sources because she does report objectively, and, and she has a magnificent mind to keep track of all the information that's going on in that courtroom and then present it in a good, organized fashion. And so, um, you know, I'm, I'm giving, they sound like faint praise, but um, I appreciate the job that she's doing, and I appreciate that she is noticeably more objective in her reporting, um, and, and that's, that says a lot for her. I think, I think that would, I think that that's the natural result of being exposed to more of the truths as these cases have, have gone on. You know, the first case in Oregon, of course, resulting in an acquittal for those who were tried. Yeah, uh, let me ask you a question here. Um, did you read, the one of the, I was actually more surprised, did you read down the article where it actually had snippets of conversation, they were in writing, snippets of conversation uh, between some of the occupiers in the refuge, in the uh, Malheur Wild Refuge building. Did you read any of that? That was very fascinating. Actually, I don't remember reading any specifics. Okay. Well, um, maybe what I'll do is put a link up to the article on uh, the podcast, and people can go read it. Well, okay, so... uh, we're in the midst of the trial now, and I do want to give the listeners just a little bit of background on the Bundys, because like you said earlier, Brian, there's so much misinformation out there. Uh, the, in 1840, let me look at my notes here. Um, in uh, the 1840s, the uh, David Bundy, the grandfather or the patriarch, if you want to call him that, was the founder of this land that the Bundys currently own today. And they really did a lot of... Oh, 1840. Yeah, okay, just wrote down in the 1840s. But they really started this land, and they started an irrigation system, and Clive and Bundy basically improved it so the cattle could pretty much roam anywhere on their land and drink the water without having to walk too far for water. Genius idea. And I'm sure other ranchers adopted his ideas. And then the BLM comes in the early 1990s trying to trespass the land and saying that uh, we own this land and things like that. And then, of course, we all know that in 1993, I think is probably when the real problems began, when Bill Clinton raised the grazing fees. As a matter of fact, you probably remember this, Brian. You were in Idaho at the time. Senator Larry Craig was really a voice for the ranchers back then, wasn't he? Right. Now, there's, yeah. there's a couple of clarifications I'd, I'd like to offer. Yeah, I think you ahead. caught the, you know, ni- 1940 was when, uh, when um, I believe, Cliven's father began ranching on, on this particular piece of land. But the, the Bundy family has been there in that area and, and working and ranching in that area since about 1877. Okay. And 
the, the, the key thing to understand here is that there's a, there's a legal term called beneficial use. Mm-hmm. And this pertains to the first person to put the water to use or the grass, the forage that those cattle eat to use. And what that creates are enforceable rights to the forage or to that, uh, that water that uh, even though you don't own title to the land, you have, you have claimed and used and defended that right and those rights are enforceable. It's like an easement. When someone buys a piece of property and, and there's an easement on there, they may have title to the property, but that easement has to remain. You know, so, for instance, like the city can get to a power pole to repair it or whatever. And, and this is, in that same sense, these grazing rights and these water rights were pre-existing rights. They, they far outdated the, uh, or predated, rather, the BLM. And when the BLM came into practice, you know, ostensibly it was there to help ranchers manage their, their rangeland and to, you know, settle disputes. But like most bureaucracies, it has grown into an agency that is kind of a force unto itself. If it, it can write its own rules that are then enforced with the force of law, it, it can't lose. They can go to court, and if the court says, well, no, um, we find against the government on this, well, the BLM just goes and rewrites its regulations, and the next time it goes to court, oh, well, according to these regulations, now we have to find this way. And so lots of ranchers found themselves being regulated out of business, and they, this was done by restricting the amount of cows that they could graze on their allotment and, and denying them their rights or trying to convert those water and grazing rights into privileges for which they would pay a fee, and they would have to sign when they, when they paid their fee, essentially signing those rights over. Cliven Bundy's attorney back in 1992 warned him, don't sign for that because they'll, they'll take your rights and convert them into a privilege which can then be withdrawn at the whim of that government agency. And it was the desert tortoise being listed as a threatened species that was the justification for which the BLM started really clamping down and restricting that. So rather than help this agency put him out of business, Cliven Bundy withdrew his consent to do business with the BLM and said, we will manage that land ourselves. Yeah, and, uh, th- yeah, okay, thanks for clarifying, and you bought back a memory here. Um, yeah, you're right, I-, I do remember now the Bundys, and Ammon Bundy said this on his video on the Who's Next, well, no, it's on the Bundy Ranch page. I think it's on the Who's Next page as well, I can't remember. I know it's on the Bundy Ranch page on Facebook. Um, talked about how they tried to make it a cattle-free land. You're absolutely right. That explains why Cliven Bundy's the only rancher is because he didn't sign that f- that waiver. Uh, he's the only rancher of the 53 ranchers that were on that land. Now, I don't know if they were the 53 original ranchers or families, but nonetheless, 53 of those ranchers, or I guess 52, left except for Cliven Bundy at that particular time. So yeah. here is what is disturbing me. Um, I have some theories. Oh, before we go there, remember the first Saturday night of April. I want to run this by you. That's when the problems began, the real problems began on the Bundy Ranch when the cattle were being shot at. Am I correct? It wasn't it the first Saturday night of April? Um, I don't know exactly when the cattle were being shot at. but um, Well, I know the yeah, BLM in, in started early... coming on the ranch that Saturday night. I have a theory. Now, well, they, they actually were, were there even prior to that, and this is stuff that's, that's coming out now um, thanks to the defense doing you know, a, a, an incredible job of, of uncovering evidence and the prosecution's witnesses inadvertently revealing evidence on the stand when they've been, been called as witnesses that, uh, that have shown the government had um, 
a massive operation, not just trespassing the cattle. That was a civil order, a court order. There were two civil court orders that were being executed. But they had a, a massive surveillance and and militarized operation against the Bundys, including sharpshooters and spotters, you know, around their house and cameras pointed at their house and surveilling them and a, an FBI SWAT team there long before there was any confrontation in April, which leads you to wonder why, why did they approach such a heavy handed in such a heavy handed fashion? Why did they send a 200 man army over an alleged debt of, of unpaid grazing fees? And that's, that's where the prosecution's portrayal of the Bundys as these dangerous, violent malcontents who, you know, uh, are, are just out there to, to point guns at federal agents and make people's lives difficult, starts to fall apart. And you start to see it's a family whose livelihood has been under attack for a couple of decades who have successfully stood up and told these bureaucrats, we're not going to do business with you, we're not going to let you take our cattle, and then found themselves on the receiving end of increasing coercion on the part of the government, which is portraying them as, as again, violent individuals, when in fact there was no violence, no provable violence that, that could be shown in their behavior, in their words, in anything. It was just the, the portrayal of them as, as a threat. And the government conducted its own threat assessment uh, on the Bundy family prior to that operation in April of 2014. And that threat assessment showed them to be the lowest level of threat possible. Now, did that operation... Uh, okay, so did they start putting surveillance cameras and all that there the first Saturday night in April? I know something happened that first no, Saturday. It, it, was in, it was in March. Okay. That they, that they were putting, putting those, those assets... In, in place. Okay, because I know something happened. March. Okay, because I know something happened that Saturday night, the first Saturday night of April, because I remember you coming on the air talking about it on your show on Monday, but I guess I want to get to this theory. What, whatever, I don't know if you remember what happened on that Saturday night, but I, I wish I was there to write it down, but I have to admit, at the time, I was halfway paying attention until you really explained what was going on uh, several minutes later, but do you think, you know, the the government is smart, and since this is an LDS Life podcast, I can say this, they're not dumb. Uh, do you think the reason they came on Saturday night was because they knew that the men would be at priesthood meeting, and maybe the women would be um, off somewhere else? I don't know. I know that uh, the government put a great deal of thought and effort into its operation against the Bundys, and they were determined to uh, to bring them to heel, so to speak. Um, but but I can't tell you specifically if that, if that's the reason why they they did whatever it was they did on on that uh, first Saturday in April. Okay. Well, uh, another question I have, and then uh, we'll get into your predictions and maybe wrap this up because I know your time's limited. Why was Glenn Beck, and still is to this day, I'm sure. Why was he so anti-Bundys? And he himself is a rancher, by the way, up in Idaho. Yeah, I speak for, for why Glenn Beck um, initially came out um, somewhat supportive of the Bundys, and then I, I can only assume he got spooked when, when the media narrative shifted to talk of domestic terrorism and and, you know, look, Cliven's a racist, you know, taking his comments out of context and so forth. 
I, I can only assume that to, that Beck was just trying to uh, protect himself, and I think Hannity fell in, into the very same um, situation. Actually, Sean Hannity was uh, on board with the Bundys before Glenn Beck until Cliven made the comment about, I wonder if black people are better off as slaves or in slavery as opposed to now. Uh, Cliven, by the way, let's make this clear, he was not endorsing slavery. I think he was trying to make no. a philosophical argument. I personally would have left that whole thing alone if I were him, but, you know, it, that well, that's his choice. Keep in mind that... Uh, that Cliven Bundy is, is a very competent rancher. Um, he's not he's not so good or polished as a spokesman, and and I'm not saying that to be insulting. It's just you know, ranching is what he does, and he's very good at that. Um, but when you have hostile members of the press corps following you around hour on hour, filming you and asking you trick bag questions, um, it, it was inevitable that they were going to find something that they could then you know use against him. And what what he was saying. Is, is essentially the same thing that Dr. Walter Williams has said, and that is um, the modern welfare state has succeeded in doing something that even slavery couldn't do, and that is destroying the black family. Yeah, when Walter Williams is a black like, column. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, just so you know, Walter Williams yeah. is a African-American black columnist, just so people know. But, but, but the, you know, with a, with a hostile press tour following you around and looking for reasons to, you know, to, to try to misinterpret or to to catch it. I mean, they were playing they were playing a very sophisticated game of gotcha. And, you know, I, I'm a fairly media-savvy guy. I've, I've spent a lot of time behind the microphone. I can think on my feet pretty well. If they were to follow me around and ask me questions all day, hour after hour, eventually I would get caught, too. What do you think he would have just said? What do you think would have happened if Cliven just would have said, this is not an issue, or I treat black people the same as white people, and just left it at that, and let the media have it with their gotcha questions, because that was clearly what they were trying to do. Well, I think he was he was trying to seize the opportunity to get his message out, you know, about why he was doing what he was doing. And um, I'm not going to fault him for for being a little bit naive about just how um, manipulative and just just how how devious members of the press corps can be when they want to sensationalize something or when they are looking to you know, to make that gotcha moment. And, you know, it was it was to his family's credit that uh, shortly, you know, shortly into the, the events of early 2014, Ammon stepped forward and, and became more of the family spokesman. And, and Ammon has a, a wonderful way with words and, and persuasiveness. And, and he's also... Um, He's a little more savvy, I think, about uh, some of the, the evil that lurks in the hearts of members of the press and knowing that you can't just, you can't speak freely in front of them. You've really got to choose your words carefully because they will distort. I mean, just a couple days ago, Carol Bundy challenged a reporter from Channel 8 in Las Vegas, don't edit what I'm telling you, she, because the lady asked her for a comment, and, and Carol said, I'll give you a comment, but I'm going to give you a challenge, too. Don't chop up what I'm seeing and twist it to mean something else. And sure enough, that's exactly what they did. They cut, you know, her comments up to sensationalize one part, but leaving out all the rest. Yeah, I want to go off on a tangent here, but I know your time is limited. Um, what is your, I want to ask a couple more questions. Why do you think Michelle Fure, and I think I have an idea, and I'll get into my idea, but 
Why do you think Michelle Fury has been silent? She specifically said at the standoff in Oregon, I will not leave you alone. It's as though she's disappeared. I, I don't know. And, and I, 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 can't, uh, I can't speak for her or put words in her mouth. I know that she was, uh, was very much um, aware of and in tune with what was happening in uh, Bunkerville in 2014. And I know that she was one of the key people who helped you know, bring the, the last few people on the refuge out um, when, when that uh, occupation was finally ended. Yeah, I but saw. I, I couldn't tell you why why she's kind of disappeared. I, I don't know. Well, Ammon Bundy on his uh, video. If you go to the Bundy Ranch Facebook page, there's a report up there uh, put up by Gavin. I don't know what his same S A N E. Yeah, sign. Um, I don't know who he is. Uh, you can tell us who he is if you'd like. But he, I think he was on the phone during the standoff in Burns, wasn't he? Um, I believe he was there at the very end of that occupation and uh, was was helping to, well, cause like, I, like, like Michelle Fiore, was helping to, to bring those last few occupiers out. Yeah, because I know he was, there was a guy named Gavin that was on the phone. Somehow they got a phone in yeah. the building. Yeah, okay. So anyway, uh, Gavin Sign put up this video that uh, Ammon made. Or he was talking in the jail cell, and mm-hmm. he said in the video that People were uh, emailing their elective representatives, and the FBI requested the elective representatives not to respond. I'm just wondering if Michelle was one of those people who was uh, intimidated by the FBI to leave it alone. Yeah, I don't know. So I I really can't comment to that. Okay. Well, okay, so the trial is here. They're on a break. The The trial reconvenes, what, the 11th of this month? On Monday, they'll be back in session. What is your prediction? Do you think they're going to get off? Do you think they'll be in jail? Do you think they'll have gag orders? What do you think will happen? And I'll give you my well, concerns they're already after. Gag- they're, already there are gag orders uh, concerning some of the sealed um, sessions that have taken place, um, one of which, you know, or a couple of which, have now resulted in all of the defendants being offered pretrial release. So I take that as a pretty good sign. The judge took a very hard line, and the prosecution took an extremely hard line about how these guys are too dangerous and too big of a flight risk to be released, and that's why they they wouldn't even allow... I mean, 660 days these guys were held behind bars while presumed innocent. They hadn't been convicted of anything. And yet uh, the judge, in, in light of further evidence coming forward in one of those sealed sessions, reversed herself and and allowed for them to be given pre-trial release. I mean, I can't make a prediction because, you know, the, the trial is still ongoing, but I will say that more truth has been introduced in this trial than was in previous trials. And I think that's a positive thing. I've watched the jury. They are engaged. They are asking questions. And the thing you have to remember, it takes one single juror who refuses to convict and it's a hung jury, and it will be a mistrial, and the government has to decide, do we dismiss it, or do we just start all over again and, and seat another jury and try this all over again? I, I am positive there will be more than one juror that will refuse to to convict, because the, the questions they're asking are very pointed towards the government's case, and that's based on, again, more of this truth that has been able to be introduced than was in previous trials. And, and look at what the previous trials have ended up at. They had a mistrial the first time there in Vegas. The second time ended with an acquittal 
on all but six out of 40 counts against, or charges against these guys. And of those two guys who, between them, had six, um, six charges pending, they were allowed to take a plea for a misdemeanor obstruction of a court order. And, and these guys were, were among the first-tier defendants. They were considered the most culpable for, for being a part of that. They, they faced the heaviest possibility of, you know, decades in prison. And, and in the end, they, they pleaded to a misdemeanor charge of obstructing a court order. No firearms charges, nothing that resembles the, the horrific case that the prosecution had laid out against them. Here's what concerns me. With these gag orders taking place, I, uh, do you know who Sam Bushman is? I uh, know the name, but I, but I don't know much about it. Sam Bushman is a person who does a... I'm actually surprised you've never met Sam, or Sam's never met you, because you run around in the same circles. But anyway, uh, it's not a bad thing, though. Sam Bushman does a show called Liberty Roundtable. It's on uh, libertynewsradio.com from 7 a.m. Or no, from, yeah, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., Monday through Friday. Hmm. It's also a podcast, Liberty Roundtable. You can look it up in most pod apps. But anyway, he had a prediction that the Bundys would get off eventually as long as they all had gag orders. But then, because of the gag orders, they couldn't talk about what was going on. They were going to come out after people like you and I for ridiculous things, the the smallest financial issues that we've been involved in. Do you think that that would happen? I don't know. Um, I, I'm going to have to 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 close out here pretty soon because I, I really have to run. But okay. Kevin, I will say this: since this since this is you know an LDS living podcast, I I want you to know that um, there is a spiritual component to what has been going on in in the Bundy's lives. I believe um, it I've because I saw it on the to, standoff. Well, and, and I've I've had the chance to interact with with numerous of their numerous family members. And, and, and get to know them beyond just a superficial, hey, how are you doing, you know, passing in the hall kind of thing. Um, they have spoken to me, they've shared experiences with me, and, and even with my own personal experiences there at Bundy Ranch in spring of 2014, um, there is no doubt in my mind that um, the hand of God is at work in their lives. And I don't purport to say, you know, that uh, therefore, you know, they speak for God. I'm just saying that there there is a powerful spiritual component that's at work here, and there are little miracles that are happening constantly. Um, I am I'm humbled by what I see, and frankly, I see them um, humbled as well. I mean, they've been through a very difficult time, and, and the, the challenges and the, the trial that they have been put through, you know, those in jail and those, their loved ones at home, have, have served to, uh, to make their faith a very deep current that runs through their lives. I don't think it was superficial before, but um, it has intensified to where they are seriously spiritual giants, and it's remarkable to see what's happening. I can't begin to guess, but I I believe Ammon when he says um, he firmly believes that the day will come when their freedom will be restored, and in his words, you know, it will be perfectly clear to everyone involved that the hand of the Lord is what's responsible. Yeah, I'd like to get into this deeper, but I know you got to run. Thanks very much for being on the podcast, and uh, well, I'll have you back again, I'm sure, as uh, things unfold. Let's do it again. Yeah. Yep, I look forward to it. Absolutely. Well, uh, folks, I want to thank you very much 
for being on the uh, listening to the LDS. Sorry, that's my screen reader. I want to thank you very much for being uh, part of the LDS Live podcast, and I will talk to you all later, folks.